there, I'm Kathy Cooper. Welcome to Loss and Found, where every loss matters and through every loss, something can be found. And that's what this hour is about, recognizing all loss. We want to validate whatever type of loss you have experienced, validating um, that what you're feeling is important, no matter the circumstance. And I always want to remind you over and over again that the depth of attachment is what distinguishes between losses. And that's why some losses are a bump in your life and others are a crater and others are in between. So not so much the type, but the attachment. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm grateful that you are here. And if you're a first time listener, welcome. Know that you can ask any question or share your thoughts by calling the studio line at 425-373-5527, 425-373-5527. We have email, which is loss, L-O-S-S, lossandfoundseattle at gmail.com. Um, with my guest today, I would think we've got some folks out there that are going to have some questions. So write that down, 425-373-5527. Email lossandfoundseattle at gmail.com. If you are just finding loss and found, and no pun intended on that, and are having difficulty hearing it through your AM radio station, I do want to let you know I'm bringing this up because I had a listener last week email Um, and said that she was having a difficult time hearing it. So go to your iPad, your your phone, your computer, anything that has some Wi-Fi with it, and you can listen through 1150kknw.com. And when you go to that page, there's a link right there. You just click on it, and voila, you are listening to the show live, and any show in particular, but, um, but mine for sure. So... Last week, um, I hope you heard the encore presentation of my conversation um, that I had with grief counselor Barb Gracie Adams. She's with Providence Sound Hospice in Olympia, and she was on and came on to to share her personal story of loss in in her life and then used that kind of as a a template to educate on complicated grief. And if you heard the show, I know you walked away with a, a deeper understanding of complicated grief, and I'm really grateful that I could replay that because I myself was uh, away for three days in Sedona, Arizona at a spiritual retreat. It was all that I wanted and nothing that I expected. Um, Not sure if that makes sense, but I wanted what I found, yet the avenues uh, exposed to get there were, were quite beyond my expectations. And in fact, it was so good that I really kind of had a hard time reintegrating back into to real life here. So, and I wasn't much prepared for that, but uh, it was good. I'm glad to be back, glad to be live. And I am here with a guest that as promised, uh, we said she would come back. Her name is Rosales Peel and she's with me today. She is a, a registered nurse and Rosales is a certified parent educator who just recently retired from Swedish Medical Center after 30 years of teaching in the parent education department. That is amazing, and just knowing a little bit that I know of her, I know families were highly touched by her presence there. She is a a certified Gottman educator, which is something to improve couples' relationships, and she created the Bringing Bringing Baby Home Workshop at Swedish Hospital, which is a program to support couples that have just had a baby, which is an astounding idea. Um, I'm, I'm sure that is something that, that folks have really been able to uh, to get a lot out of. And 
last but certainly not least, she is here because she is the author of Mike and Me, an inspiring guide for couples who choose to face Alzheimer's together at home. And this book is was three years in the in the making, and, and it's really designed to be a guide for couples who want to face Alzheimer's together at home. It, um, if you heard the show last time when she was on, you heard me go on and on about how an amazing book it is, but it really can be used in a variety of ways. And um, it's a book that you can pick up and you can gain insight into how to interact with an individual with Alzheimer's. What's great is it's written in short chapters, and at the end of each chapter, there are these insights that really give um, the learning moment that really support what you were just reading. And Rosala shares her journal notes at, uh, to really help with the, the timeline and to give some inso- insights that way and to give, to give some specific quotes. And it's a book that when you pick up, there's just different chapters that, will, that you will find that you will be living throughout your journey. And it's a great book to pick up because, hey, today I need to talk about sleep. Okay, here's, here's a chapter to help me kind of get um, back into how can we get on a sleep cycle or what's going on with not being able to sleep. So it's, uh, and, and I really like, and I'm kind of going off here, but I, I get so excited about this book. And so I really like Rosales too, that you hit on topics that are kind of taboo. You know, a lot of times we don't want to talk about intimacy, and that's a huge part of a relationship. Um, we'll get into a little bit of discussion about a hospital bed when it came time for that. And but you you hit intimacy in a in a um, husband wife or partner relationship, and I think that that is a, a really valuable part as well of the book. So I'm glad you're here for the discussion. I, I think it's going to be really worthwhile. You're going to learn a lot. You're um, going to want to be telling friends and family to uh, to come join in on the conversation. Um, she wrote the book. Rosales wrote the book at her doctor's suggestion because the their relationship and the the disease went a little differently. And her doctor thought it was uh, put a little bug in her ear to to write a book about that because he was diagnosed. Mike was um, in uh, in 2002, and he died in in 2011 after a nine and a half year. Uh, journey with the the illness. And it really was predicted that the last two years of his life, he would be in a care facility and he was not. And um, it's, you know, we do a lot of predictions that the person isn't going to be able to stay home and be with their family. And Rosales and Mike, they were able to, with the help of others, manage his care at home until the end. And what is even more amazing is Mike knew Rosales until the very end. And you know, this book was really written to give hope and to challenge, I think, the myths of the disease. And we'll get into to some of those throughout our conversation. Um, so we have a lot to, to get to, which is why I'm not doing a monologue. And we're going to start talking with her right away. Again, the studio line is 425-373-5527. And you can email lossandfoundseattle at gmail.com. All right. Welcome, Rosales. Thank you, Kathy. I love your introduction. I feel humbled. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, audience, she is here. I'm, I'm talking a lot, but she is still sitting here. So, you know, let's, let's just do this. Um, let's start with the diagnosis. And what did you think that last year to six months would look like versus what they really were like? So I think I was not any different than anybody else who hears your loved one's going to have a diagnosis or does have a diagnosis of Alzheimer's. 
And, you know, I come from an RN background, but I'd never dealt with anybody who had Alzheimer's. And I had seen the TV shows, read the news reports, hear about people who get lost. And all those things came tumbling in on me. And I have to say, I think Mike had the same kind of fears I'll ever. His turned out to be primarily that he was concerned about having to live away from me in our home. Mm-hmm. But for me, I also had that whole big thing about getting harmed or hurt or, you know, yeah. uh, Mike in the car. So all of that happened with the diagnosis. It was a little bit overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then it took a while. You know, Mike was just angry at first. And then when we got through that a little bit and we actually got around to actually having a real discussion and somewhat level of appreciation that this was going to happen or knowledge that was going to happen, we really did talk about, you know, what was important. And for Mike, the important thing was to stay home. So we made an agreement that he would stay at home as long as it was possible. However, we had heard that most likely the last Mm -hmm. two years he'd be in a care facility. And I think that's what we all kind of depend upon or, you know, think that that's going to happen. And what what is the case? Yes, his side is he wants to stay home. And then we have the side of actual care and folks saying, I don't think we can either a afford right. that or or we can do it so obviously facilities are needed and necessary right. um what's great about this book is and i think it's unique and we were talking off the air um someone could use this as a guide yes and you know i think for me i didn't have that book out there that could give me some hope that yeah. maybe we can do this at home is yeah. it possible to do it at home if we do it at home how do we do it and so when mike's doctor said i should you know tell others about it I just journaled a little bit more thinking maybe someday I would do it. But I really wrote it to be an inspiration for people that Mm -hmm. if they wanted to do it at home, it was possible and also give them some guidance in how you can do it. Things that I kind of stumbled across that made it work. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm so excited about the book because it's doing that. As I go out and speak and I talk to people or people pick up the book and then they come up to me and said, I'm just inspired now. I, I feel like maybe we can do this or we can certainly stay at home longer than I thought. Exactly. So that's what I hope the book would do and exactly what it's doing. And what I hope the book does <laughs> in my reading it is really help everyone in that person's life maintain a connection with them. And that's what strikes me most about the book. That's what when I would read it strikes my heart and brings tears to my eyes is the fact that it is a template for how to maintain a connection. However, um, and this is also off the air, but I want to bring it up now because we were talking about how do we get the word out about this book? Because people, I'm, I'm telling you, Mike and me, um, Mike and me book.com is where you can go uh, to, to uh, buy the book and learn more about it. And you're really going to want to do this. And it's so important for, and, you were saying last time, Rosales, that your relationship with Mike was, was pretty solid. Oh, absolutely. And it's so important if someone that you love is diagnosed with Alzheimer's to become solid as quickly as possible before too late, however that would be. And um, what would, I guess, just off the top of your head, what would be some things that people, because what was so important of you being being solid, telling him the truth and being able to do that? But talk a little bit about what that would look like for you. Right. A, so to give advice to I someone. guess to go back a little bit, I want to set up that we were not the perfect couple. I mean, I think every couple has its ups and downs. And one of our big challenge was when we had two little kids, 
mm-hmm. which is why when John Gottman came to Swedish and approached us about teaching or creating a couple's relation workshop, myself and two other instructors did that with him. And I knew that was so important because that's when couples really struggle. So I had those tools ready as Mike and I went through this. I'd already figured it out. He and I'd figured it out, mm-hmm. how to be kind to each other and respect each other. And then they were in play for me. So, um, you know, there's certain ones there I can talk about, but I would describe it as more of just a way of interacting with him uh, with respect and understanding and appreciation. And one of my favorite little chapters in there is, Do You Lie to Your Loved One? And that's a very uh, questionable chapter because there's a whole different philosophy about that. And uh, I would never argue with him if he believed something different, but I would clarify that I didn't see that or... I didn't know that or, you know, maybe there was a little confusion because you have Alzheimer's, but I'm here to help you. So he was always treated with dignity and honesty. And because I did that with him, it maintained our relationship. You know, it it kept us strong instead of me treating him as an individual who was unresponsive or, or could not respond to me. Oh, yeah, I can see. I can see how that then it separates that can separate you from the relationship because now you're not interacting, you're telling, you're, you're just giving him information to try to keep peace, to try to keep him um, sated versus it being an interaction. Right, rather yeah. than treating him as an equal and my partner and yeah. uh, somebody I could still share feelings with. You know, even at the end, I was working one day a week up at Swedish Hospital, and if I had a tough day, I could still come home and say, well, how'd your day go? He could or could not communicate that to me, and we had a caregiver that one day a week, and I could bring her into the conversation. Oh, did you get a little ride, or how was lunch? And then I could say to Mike, well, you know, I had a tough day today. Mm-hmm. Or I could say to him, you know, it was really hot out. It was a terrible commute. So I didn't close those things down, and mm-hmm. I think that's what kept us connected. And Mike just had some wonderful pieces or parts of him that were still there at the end of life, one of the chapters I love are uh, 12 Unexpected Blessings or something like that. It's a beautiful little chapter, but one of them I'll tell you right now is just that he genuine had, genuinely had the ability to feel my sadness or when I was upset. I mean, truly had the ability to know empathy. And this is really late in the disease. Yeah, We're yeah. well into the ninth year. And, you know, there was a point where I hit my foot on the bed and you know I would really hurt and you could just look at Mike's Mike's face was absolutely he was so sorry I hurt and he put his hand out to me and responded so that ability to have empathy empathy is a pretty Mm -hmm. uh, involved sense of emotion and that was absolutely there for Mike so those things I just did not expect in the ninth year or at the end of life nobody told me that could happen exactly let alone the fact that he would still know and love me at the end of life Mm-hmm. We do have um, we do have a, a few questions here, but before I get to one of these, I just wanted to follow up with the fact that during that that time that last year, and you could kind of sense the death. Mike Mike was maybe sensing um, his death was coming. That can be a difficult time for folks to handle, and I know you handled that honestly. Give a, a quick snapshot of how you related to Mike during that time, what you two talked about, how you talked about the reality of death with him. Yes. um, hmm. 
I'm trying to think of a specific little story because it came up when you didn't expect it. You know, it's not like we're going to sit down and talk about death this afternoon. Yeah. It just sort of happened on occasions, you know. There was a day I remember over lunch he started to cry, and at that point he couldn't express himself very well. We did a little better talking about it earlier, but the day he started to cry over lunch and obviously wasn't able to eat, and I just put his my arms around him and I said, uh, it's getting really hard now, isn't it? And he kind of gave me a nod, and I said, we knew it was going to get hard, and these are the hard times. And maybe we didn't even say death at that time. There was another conversation I remember asking him if he wanted to talk to Dennis, who was our rector at the church, and he told me no. And I said, you know, is there anything you feel like you would like to get in order? And he said no, and he did say a very sweet thing. He just said to me, I just don't want you to be sad. So that was, again, Again, him, mm -hmm. his ability to think about empathy for me. He just Mm -hmm. didn't want me to be sad. Mm -hmm. And so certainly over our 45 years of marriage, you do talk about life and death and what are your thoughts about death. And so I would say those were just little things that happened. But I didn't close them down if I felt he was sad about something. Versus saying, oh, honey, you're not going to die right now or let's not talk about that, which is so often we we are apt to do. There was one day when he said, you know, something about, you know, it indicated to me, you know, I I just want to die or this is too hard or something. And I do remember one day I put my arms around him and I said, oh, honey, I'm not ready and began to cry. And so I did have to get back to him about that later and let him know when he was ready, I was ready. Mm -hmm. But there was that moment I remember clearly my just saying, oh, I'm not ready. Mm -hmm. So we cried that one out together. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The important thing is. You were talking about it and recognizing it. Right. And And I always brought my emotions open to Mike, too. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that I just had to be there for his emotions. He was there for my emotions as well. You weren't taking that. I have to be strong for him. Well, yeah, there was just days when I had to say, I'm exhausted. I'm worn out. We're having a hard day. Mm -hmm. You know, let's take a break or whatever was necessary. So that's what kept us as a marriage because he was still there for me and I was still there for him. Mm hmm through that connection yeah so uh, a listener from Monroe says Rosales you and Mike had a positive can-do attitude from the start of his Alzheimer's diagnosis going against the tide of public opinion knowing what you know now how did you keep hope alive in those earliest moments and in the last moments actually there's a few other questions too that this interesting you know I'm going to have to give my credit, and I have to say one of the things I liked about the book when we were trying to figure out how to format and how to set it up, was it my voice or Mike's voice or our voice? And Mike's in the book with me every step of the way. Mm-hmm. So, um, again, I want to think about the wording of the questions, but, you know, how did I keep hope up? It was Mike. It was how Mike would respond to me, and I had to really look for it. You know, if you're dealing with somebody with Alzheimer's, it's so easy to miss it. And I just had to look for it, especially towards the end where he'd raise an eyebrow, something happened, or reach out for me with his hand. And um, that's what kept hope alive, is that Mike was still with me. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, it was getting more difficult. I had to bring in more help to manage, but I just could not imagine uh, not being with Mike at that point. So really what you're saying, what I'm hearing in that in particular is the looking for it. 
if if you if you look, you're likely going to find something that says they're still with you. Right. And so, you know, the question is, how did you keep hope alive? And maybe it's more, how did I keep hope alive that we could do it at home? So if it's how I figured out we could do it at home, there was the two pieces. One, because Mike was still with me. I was getting that yeah. emotional connection. Yeah. But the other thing is, whenever I think I could not do it, the answer was always, I need more breaks for me or I need more help with Mike. You know what? I needed a night away. I needed to go out to coffee with friends. I needed to take a walk. I needed somebody to help me get him in and out of bed. I always just needed more help. If I had more help, I could do it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's so indicative. As one person's physical ability shrink, so does the person that's caring for them. Their life shrinks, but the the help that is so needed, and that's where we have to set our pride aside. Right. And really enlist because friends and family, somebody's there wanting to help you. We just kind of have to to accept it. Right. But it sounds like that was real a big part of what your journey was, is you had hope folks you could call upon. And I had to learn to reach out. Yes. You know? Yep. In the chapter where I first start talking about, it, I say Mike and I had been fairly independent as a couple, and all of a sudden we're having to, you know, ask our two adult children for help. They yeah. were there for us, and. Uh, neighbors people would say what can I do for you and I just needed to be willing to say I could use a little help or can you do this Mm -hmm. and um, that's how we did it yeah yes Um, another question is let's see here describe some of the late stage blessings Mm, late stage blessings oh of course at the top of the list I've got to put Mike there that was absolutely one of the really fun things uh, one of the important things. I also loved Mike's laughter. I didn't think Mike would have a sense of humor, and he did. Um, hmm. So if something funny would happen, and we could laugh at it together. Not quite late, 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 but I remember one time he came in, and he had his boxers backwards, and he was laughing. He said, this is the best one yet. So <laughs> I was maybe seventh or eighth year. I thought that was pretty fun. I never thought we could travel the last year. So the chapter where I talk about blessings the last year, that's year nine. And Mike actually lived nine and a half years. So in that chapter, I'm talking about his last full years, full year. And then there was that last six months or so. But traveling, I never thought that would be possible. And we went to our little cabin that we had in Montana that had been Mike's dad. And our son made it possible one time. And dear friends came and made the trip with us a second time. So mm-hmm. that was unbelievable, unbelievable, because mm-hmm. he was supposed to be in a care facility. And yeah. here we're making a trip to Montana. Yeah. Um, I think also the fact that he was still with me, that he connected to who I was, that was pretty special. Another one I'll throw out there is uh, Mike. I don't even know how he did it, but he was able to let my son know that he wanted a party. I came home. I'd been gone over the weekend <laughs> working. And uh, I came back and our son said, uh, Dad wants a party. I thought, well, how do you know he wants a party? <laughs> he said he told me. And it's like, I don't, I didn't know that, you know, we were having those, that level of conversations, but he knew that. So we had a party in that ninth year for Mike. We brought some fellows from his work that he had worked with before. At that point, Mike was in a wheelchair. We did snack food, finger food around 11 o'clock, so he wasn't tired. And um, that was a wonderful event, and those people we brought together were so appreciative that Mm. we did it. So I think those are the ones. I remember one day coming home from work, and he was tearful. 
And so we actually were able to figure out a little discussion around that. And I said, you know, was I sad? were you sad I was gone? Yeah. And then I figured out that actually it was more than that. He was afraid that something had happened to me. I wasn't there. He was afraid oh. that something had happened to me. And that's just a level that I never, never expected that he would have there. He remembered things, too, I didn't expect. One time I was concerned about something at work, and I shared that with him. And it was the next day he wanted to know he was following up with it. And, oh, you know, wow. with broken <laughs> communication, it was work, work, work. And I tried to figure it out. And it turned out he wanted to make sure that problem had been taken care of. That's incredible. Yeah. This is his yeah. ninth year. He was supposed to be in a care facility. Yep. So um, his mm-hmm. environment stayed the same. I stayed the same. The people around him continued to come by, neighbors. People didn't lose him because he was off in another location. So we were fortunate to do mm-hmm. it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are nice. Those are nice. Um, one more here that she's asking, what did you do to keep yourself personally encouraged and uplifted? That's a good question. This is from Deanna and, and uh, Monroe. That's a good question. How did I keep myself uplifted? Oh, you know, the church came into play, certainly. Um and I don't even know if I'd put it at the top of the list. I'm going to have to put these next to each other because um, journal notes, journal notes were real important to me. It turned out that the journal notes became a book. But when I wrote in the journal, I was also writing my feelings about what a tough day it was or didn't know if I could do it. Or, and then I'd usually end off with, well, this was what was good about it. I could see the upside, not just the downside. So journal notes, uh, the church community, and, of course, my children were incredible. Mm-hmm. I have to say, you know, that's different than for some families because no one ever second-guessed me, and that was pretty fun. Oh. You know, oh. I was totally getting to make decisions and figure out what worked best, and that made it a little bit easier than for some families where you might have, um, yeah, you know, three or four siblings figuring out the care for mom or dad, and they disagree, uh, or perhaps an elderly couple where children need to step in. But... My two children were just there, you know, we'll do whatever we can. And uh, so I'd say my little immediate family, my sisters, that's the bigger family, the community, and uh, the church and journal notes, uh, walks with friends. I love my night bath. Wow. That uh, calmed me down every night before I went to bed. Yeah. So, yeah. So finding something. That, simple. Yeah. Simple. Something simple. And I think I like the journaling because once you get it out, you can kind of it kind of is like, oh, okay, this did happen, but oh, that reminds me, this happened right. too, and it, it's it's kind of putting there in black and white. But really, the date was like. Right. I will say one other thing: I needed a little time for me every day, and so one way that would happen is if Mike slept a little later, I'd roll out of bed and maybe pull off a little time to journal note or just to have a little time myself. Uh, same thing at night if I could settle him, and then you know take a quiet mm-hmm. bath by myself and just have a little time. And I'd be pretty grumpy if I thought he was settled and he's hollering to me and I'm in the tub in the other room. It's like, oh, I want you to go to sleep. <laughs> yeah. You know, so I, I, you know, I wasn't always 100% the best caregiver. I had my moments, too. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of like, I don't want to get out and yeah. do something for you. <laughs> I had you all settled. You're supposed to be that's sleeping. Right. So that's is, just the nature of the beast yeah. of being a caregiver. And then, fortunately, I knew a lot of things about relationships so even in that example I might have been grumpy and uh, then maybe responded a little grumpy to him 
but then to recognize, okay, we just need a little break. You know, that's what needs to happen mm-hmm. right now. I need to step away and be a little gentler and a little kinder. Mm-hmm. And you know, when you were saying um, it, the circumstances where there's a parent with perhaps lots of siblings that, or at least if you have more than one sibling, that there might be some conflict. I think the book could be helpful to them as well in the sense of here's a way that the situation was dealt with and look at the outcome. So maybe if nothing else, let's just read it and try some of these things and let's agree for in this, even if it would be, let's agree in this one instance, this is how we're going to do it for mom or for dad. You know, I think they, there could be some things that, that siblings can, can learn from that because as I over and over in my mind, it is about a relationship and a connection and anybody can can learn from that, but especially in those circumstances where we've got somebody over our shoulder making decisions about the decisions we're making, I think this book could be really beneficial to them in that respect. I would have to say, as I've talked to people, people have told me that it works in different care situations, not just for Alzheimer's. It works in different ways if you're providing care for somebody, and I'd say absolutely people can put it in play just as you described. So they take the pieces that work for them. It's not mm-hmm. going to be the same for everybody, but uh, I'd say I'm hearing 100% that people are finding things that make a difference. And if ultimately they have made the decision, the best thing for them and their family and the one they love is to use a care facility, which might be necessary down the road, that they know that these techniques and what I did and how I did it can help maintain that relationship, Mm -hmm. even if, in fact, they're not able to do it continually at home. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because you can take that into the facility that they're living in and create perhaps the relationship that that wasn't there. And I think that's another thing is even if it's not there at the beginning where you've got, you know, like you and Mike were were solid. Reading this, I just have the belief of the human spirit. And because we don't know what really is inside of that person, you know, there's still spirit. There's still, there's still being in there. And I think we can use some of these techniques to, to connect. I I really believe that. One of the stories that I like so well is, and this actually comes from somebody I spoke to fairly recently, she and her partner were just having a lot of conflicts. You know, you sort of, if you're not careful, you'll get into bossing somebody around or telling them what to do just because they need a little bit of that. But at any rate, she just sort of backed off and took on the approach of telling them what they did right, which is just another Mm -hmm. little, you know, relationship Mm -hmm. research information I know from Gottman Research. And so that was the direction she went. She just pointed out what was so good. Oh, good job you did that, or thanks for getting that. And she said it absolutely smoothed things out for them. They just started managing in a whole different way. Hmm. And so just that one little thing alone made a difference. So I'll just give a second little plug. I think the two things that make what we did unique compared to what other people do, I was fortunate to have a handle on the relationship things, how to keep our relationship strong. But the other one that really came into play is I understood about child development. Yeah. And because I was yeah. able to think about that when we had Mike's skills decreasing, I didn't ever treat him like a child, but I could actually think to myself, ah, this is how I handle things with a two or three-year-old. And for instance, going out to eat, you don't do a fancy dinner out with a three-year-old. You, use, you have lunch breaks and you do things in Mm -hmm. a different way. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to put that into play many times. And instead of being upset about a certain behavior, I could just think his abilities are now at this level and I need to help him at that level. And uh, it made me a kinder caregiver. 
and it helped us move through time in a much smoother way. I think that's a really good point, and probably we should go back to the drawing board and re, you know, research what that, you know, the developmental stages, how to interact with, with kids. And so whenever we see our loved one in a different development, and that's what it is, they're in a, they're in a developmental stage that, that is different, but to do some research on that so we know how to, how to respond, I think that's, that's a really good point. It also really came into play with words. You know, when you think about a little two-year-old who can't express themselves very well or even younger than that, or they're upset, they have an emotion, and they can't really tell you about that. If you, as their loved one, are able to put your arms around them and say, I know we're having a difficult time. I know you're mm-hmm. trying to tell me something right now. You know, let's give it a little break. Let, let's try this again later. Or, you know, use some of those things you did with a little child when they were having trouble trying to express something. Um, I also learned that, of course, as you think about going back with your developmental stages, another key part was realizing Mike needed more sleep. The brain really needs sleep. And if you're not getting enough sleep, you cannot function at the best ability you can. Mm -hmm. So learning how to do that as well. So it was exciting to be able to put them down, put them in a book and say, hey, there's a (laughs) chapter on sleep here. And uh, what did I learn? And how did that help us? And what about the whole thing on speech? And how did we get through it when Mike couldn't speak very well? Mm -hmm. And I just did not find a book like that out there. It just no, was not there. It isn't. And the beauty is they're all little stories, only two yeah. or three pages, and then beautiful, I call them beautiful insights. I think others have told me that Yes. with these lovely little insights at the end that yeah. kind of pull the chapter together. Because, you know, we don't have time, you know, if you're caring for someone, you don't have time to sit down and read 10, 15, 20 pages in a chapter, you know, and that's that's what's so great is, okay, I can read this, and first of all, you know, you get it because it's clear and um, the insights you can just as we were saying last time when you were on you can just even pick that up and read read the insights and the journal I mean it it just I'm not even being paid people and I'm just saying (laughs) (laughs) this book is is really life it really is life-changing and it's life-changing for me who doesn't have to um, to care for someone you know I'm not in a position like that but it's life-changing for me in the fact of how I see talking with folks and interacting and and respecting them. Mike remained a person. And I think, you know, where we underestimate the whole Alzheimer's thing is we don't give them enough credit for what they know. Exactly. We just think they know nothing any longer. Right. We're looking at the loss of what they don't have instead of looking at what still maintains. Exactly. Say that again. We look at the loss instead of what they still maintain. Exactly. And so, you know, uh, when that happened for me at the end of life, you know, and I'm talking last days there, that Mike could look me right in the eye, his eyes told me a lot, and that he could lift a hand to acknowledge my presence. I mean, he was still there. Mm-hmm. And if you don't do that, you can look at all the things that he can no longer do. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to take it one more step because I, you know, I think it'd be fun if there's more research about it. But you take a little tiny baby and you think about a little infant. A little infant knows their mother by sight, sound, smell, and touch. Mm. And I think those things were all there for Mike and I at the end of life. I think sight, sound, touch, smell. I think he knew my presence in all those ways. Wow. And a little baby cannot speak. A little baby cannot tell you their feelings. They cannot do a lot. But a little newborn baby knows who you are. Oh, wow. That just gave me chills. Yes. You see it in their eyes. Mm-hmm. Their eyes are where you really see that you're connected to them. 
And I never lost that connection with Mike and his eyes. Mm-hmm. Wow, that gives me chills. That's a yeah, that's good. Um, we do have a, a question through email from Karen. She says, "Can you tell me when you knew it was time to call in hospice, and how they assisted or maybe interfered in your life and process?" Oh, thank you for that question, Karen. Um, the doctor helped us with that. Uh, we had a doctor's visit, and the doctor said, you know, it might be time to call hospice now. And I didn't even really know the full ramifications of that, gradually did. So um, I think it even then took us a few weeks to decide to place the call. She had gone ahead and do, done paperwork for us. And then I remember the day they came. That was a big day for us. Mike and I would certainly talked about it ahead of time. We had things set up out on the deck, so we had kind of a nice sunny spot to sit. It was a beautiful day in August. And uh, they explained they needed to assess to see if he'd qualify. And after they asked certain questions and asked him to walk to see if he could walk, find out how much help he needed with his care, after all those things were done, they said, yes, he qualified. And... um, I needed to show some paperwork to them that I had power of attorney. And we were ready to sign the papers. And it was really tough. It was tough because I knew then that things were shifting. We had always Mm -hmm. lived with some hope, Mm -hmm. the magic pill, hoping something Mm -hmm. would change. And in fact, this was saying that we were moving to a new level. So I looked at Mike and I said, you know, do you want to do this? It means we're going to have some more help. And uh, he looked at me and he gave me a nod. And so one more time, I'd included him with that, and we did sign the papers. It was such a mixed bag for me because I felt like we were giving up some hope, and uh, we were moving into end of life. They were very good, however, in giving more information to me because, again, I lacked some of that knowledge, which is you can go into hospice. You can also go off hospice. Yes. So you don't have to stay in the hospice program. And so that was something I did not understand originally. And, of course, all the wonderful services they offered us, it was wonderful. I I just can't imagine doing it without them at the end of life. Mm. And I know in in the book you were talking um, about the time when the hospital bed conversation came up. And I obviously was in hospice. But, however, I understand when I was reading that, I understood exactly where you were coming from. And I think a lot of times we as a profession— forget what bringing in a hospital bed means to a couple. Um, So would you want to share what your thoughts were on that? So, you know, the social worker who suggested it to us and the nurse who suggested it to us, they were so right. I want to say that up front. It was clear we needed a hospital bed. I'd been trying to prop Mike up in bed to help feed him. I'd been trying to, you know, do certain things that were really difficult, not having a hospital bed. And on top of that, we eventually ended up with a lift that we could slide under the bed, and then I could uh, slip sort of a jacket on him, help him get out of bed. And we could not have used that without a hospital bed. But at any rate, when they're talking about bringing a hospital bed in, what it meant to me is now we are essentially in twin beds, Mm -hmm. and we had been in the same marriage bed for 45 years. Exactly. So we are talking two different languages. I'm saying, I don't know if I'm ready to have Mike in a hospital bed, you know, We've been together all these years, and they're into a very practical approach. This makes all kinds of sense. I'm talking it about an emotional level. And that communication, 
it, it didn't break down, but we were, we were talking about different things. Yes. I'm on an emotional level. They're on a physical level. It was after they left that I realized, I know what's wrong here. They're not getting the emotional change of not sleeping with your husband mm-hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm. And that was what I was feeling. And that's huge. And that's mm-hmm. huge. And, and that's something that we need as service professionals to recognize because that is what it's about. That changes the whole, you know. When, so what did you do? You, you To we get around that, it. what no. did you do? <laughs> right. I started by postponing it. And every day that I was trying to put more pillows behind him and he was slipping. And every day I was bending over the regular bed. I kept thinking, oh, a hospital bed would be a great help. So it took me a couple of weeks, and then we ordered it. And I did figure out how I had a little twin bed in a little guest bedroom. And so we moved out our double bed, brought in a little twin bed right next to Mike's bed. And that all sounds simple. It's a little complicated trying to keep those two beds next to each other. But the nice part is he had separate linens. I had separate linens. I put a big spread over the top so it looked like one bed uh, during the day. And I could easily roll over next to him at night certainly as we both started to go to sleep. And then I'd try to slip over on my side when it was time to really curl up and go to sleep. Yeah. But we could, we could reach out. We could touch each other. We were physically close to each other. Yeah. And that's, that's what, and I loved how you you get the the king size to put the blanket to put over both of them. But I think that's, that's what is important. And folks listening, if you had to be in that situation, you know what, try, if you can try something to where you can still be, be beside each other. I have to add just one more little thing. You know, some of these things, you know, aren't real scientific, but it's just the experience that I share in the book, and then everybody takes the part that fits for them. But I certainly know that with infants, we know that when infants are in the same room with their parents and they have regular breathing, their cycle of breathing is regular and they sleep better. And so I had that philosophy. If we slept close to each other, Mike would breathe better and Mm -hmm. we'd have a more peaceful night's sleep. And I think that was true. Our sleep was, was pretty good right till the very end. That makes sense. Huh. That makes sense. Yeah. I like that. All right. I, I'm like I told you before, sometimes some people say something on the radio and I'm like, oh, I have to keep thinking about that before I can go on. I like that. You are so right. And I think that would be something for folks to try out in their own relationship and see. Huh. Um, so something I, I found interesting, too, during this uh, the last uh, months of his life, the hospice nurse told you that you're still making memories. And that to me was a profound statement. And it sounds like seemed in the book to you, it was kind of like, you know what I am. It was so wonderful because, you know, now you're in hospice and you sort of think of yourself as now you've moved into a new phase, which is death and dying. And then, you know, I told her certain things we'd done. I could still manage to get Mike in the car and we couldn't get out easily, but I could drive through a place to get a special drink. We had a special place we'd like to go and sit and have our little cup of tea or cup of coffee together and So I could continue to do that with him. And I shared that with one of the hospice nurses of what we had been doing and or even sitting out on the deck together or, you know, having a friend over or do something. And she said, oh, you're still making memories. And that was wonderful. Mm -hmm. It was just a perspective I hadn't thought about. And I literally at that point started getting the camera out to get more photos because I did not want to forget that. And so I have some lovely photos of those last weeks and months together and uh, people who came by and so those are very fond memories and you can think end of life and you can think end of Alzheimer's that's the end of it and it just was absolutely Mm -hmm. not for us Mm -hmm. it just was not there's so much living that is done and dying 
oh, there's an intimacy when somebody allows you to be part of their life at that moment. Again, you know, because I come from a parent education background, I can't help but think about the intimacy when somebody invites you to be there at their birth Mm -hmm. and the intimacy to share in those last weeks and last days with somebody. Um, That's an amazing experience. And we were selective in who we allowed to be part of that, especially those last couple of weeks. I actually pulled in a little bit. Um, I loved the circle of friends. But for me, I kind of closed down. It was more of a quiet time instead of a lot of people will bring people in Mm -hmm. to make that a bigger circle. I needed to make it a little bit quieter. So it was my children and Mike and I Mm -hmm. primarily. Mm -hmm. That's who I needed there. Yeah. And I think that's that's always something to be aware of. Um, I used to tell families that, you know, it's when everybody wants to come, but this person only has so much energy. And who do you want to be the one, you know, who is it that you want him or her to give that energy to? And just really think about that immediate family or the his his or her dear loved ones versus, you know, 50 neighbors coming down. Right. And I think that's true for the person who is at the end of life. But it's also for their loved one you know in my case it was primarily me but for my children too so it's also for the person who's been caring for them how many people do they want at that moment Mm -hmm. as well how does it what's it like for you to to look at photos now of of those last few months those last few weeks with him i would say the memories come flooding back and i think that's the way it should be it's been eight years since Mm -hmm. mike died so the memories come flooding back and um i don't fear them and I don't try to deny them or not let them come. Mm-hmm. It's okay. Sometimes something will happen. It kind of catches you and it takes you back. And uh, I think that's a beautiful thing. It's supposed to. I'm supposed mm-hmm. to feel that way. Yeah. Yeah. So have you found it, especially originally after his death, um, looking at the photos and seeing how, you know, his, how we would probably say he was a vibrant, you know, man. And then he, you know, became... You know, people think that folks wither away, and I don't like that that term. But you know, he probably did look weaker and physically had lost weight and all that. Is there was it difficult to look at at photos of that process? I, I, for me, I just think it was a different time. Okay, you so know? you're yeah, yeah. It, it was just a different time. You know, you can look at you know when you were first married, and boy, I look at myself. I don't look at all like I did yeah. when I was first married. But I, I like that. I like that reframe. It's, it's just, just a, a different, different. It was a different time. And so those last weeks and months were a different time. And Mike looked different. There you go. That's a takeaway, people. It's just different times. Mm-hmm. It, and I, in the book, sometimes I talk about different chapter of your life, you know, a different, mm-hmm. a different moment. Moving to hospice was definitely a different chapter. Definitely it is. And I know when folks um, think it, it's, you know, a lot of folks will think that it is that we're giving up and there's no more hope in that. And I always try would try to help families examine the possibility of it's it's hope in a different way now. Now we're we're looking at things differently and not well we're giving up hope that he's going to be cured or something's going to change, but for right now our hopes are different, which is more time together, which is you know making sure people are comfortable and love is there and you're focusing on some of the more important things that that have always been there but maybe now you're going to highlight and in the past. All those things I needed to learn from hospice. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I was learning along the way, which I hope, you know, my hope in the book is that some of those things I learned are out there for everybody now. But I needed to learn that from hospice, that mm-hmm. that's what hospice was about, 
was giving quality of life at the end of life yeah. and that it wasn't necessarily all about dying. And um, there was just so many things I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And um, it took three years before I was ready to write and then tried and wasn't easy and then had a surprise encounter with somebody who knew how to write. And he's, his name I very proudly have on the front of the book, Dan Zadra. And so he helped me know how we would put this together and uh, gave me that guidance. And that was all divine intervention as well, you meeting up with this gentleman the way you did. And it's well, I, now we've got the audience going, well, what does that mean? So do you, do you feel like... I can like, keep it short. I can keep, keep it, it short. short. Okay, because I'm sure... <laughs> fun stories I love. Yeah. So three years after Mike, I went over to this little cabin that had been Mike's dad's in Montana and thought, I've got my journal notes. I can write this. And of course, coming from a nursing background, had no idea how to do this. So I tried, wrote a little bit of a chapter that's in the book called Our Love Story about how we met. Then coming back from Montana, I stopped in Coeur d'Alene and uh, it was early, nine in the morning, kind of misty, rainy, and I just got out to stretch and walked up to a monument on a hill, kind of a deserted area, and a fellow was coming down. He had a dog on a leash with a muzzle that he was actually trying to pull back the other way. And I spoke to him first. I thought it looked reasonably safe. And I said, oh, you know, here's a monument I hadn't seen. And he explained that to me. And I said, oh, I just had to get out and stretch. I'm going from Montana to Seattle. It's a long drive. He said, oh, I used to live in Kingston. I said, oh, that's interesting because I live on Bainbridge. (laughs) How'd you get over here? And he said, well, I'm a book mentor. (laughs) Unbelievable. Unbelievable. (laughs) That is. That is. (laughs) So Dan Zadra walked into my life, a book mentor who really knows what he's doing and has published many books. And I feel fortunate to have him as a partner and a book editor and my publisher and uh, the quality of book we have now. Mm -hmm. I really give him a great deal of credit for that. And one of the things I don't want to forget is that we recently won an award for our book. I was going to bring that up. Yeah, this uh, is big. It's Forward Indie, and uh, we took the gold medal in that. So that's very impressive. And... uh, Yes, the book which, is out there helping which tell, people. Which tell people what that means. It's um, self-help? Yes, in the category. We took it in the self-help category. So it really is the guide, which is just what I hope for. So uh, I know Kathy may do a, a call out to all of you, but I want to do it as well, is we are really just starting to get out there and let people know the book's there. And if you've got some suggestions or connections that you could connect us to others that might be interested in me speaking or places that... I can let other people know about the book. Please don't hesitate to get mm-hmm. to our website, uh, which is uh, mikeandmebook.com, and it's Mike, and then spell out the word and uh, mebook.com. Yeah, that, and that is truth. And I, I think just even, you know, in the local area, I think all of the care communities should be having you come in and talk to the care care um, partners and just really give some good information to them because this book is changing lives, will continue to change lives. And I'm very happy and proud that you, <laughs> that you, I'm going to say I knew her when, uh, <laughs> definitely, well, because I would, it, there's a lot, there's a lot that, that um, can be gleaned from this book. I'd love it to be there for every caregiver. And I am going to be uh, talking with Elder Place again, which is well known in our community. I'll be in Spokane, first part of October, and I'm going to be speaking to the VA in Nevada soon. So we've got some fun things coming yeah. up, and I hope to be doing more of it. Yeah, good, good. Um, we did have a, another question, which is, best advice to the children of someone living with Alzheimer's? Best advice to children 
of somebody who's living with Alzheimer's, meaning the children are in a home with somebody. And of course, that's so age dependent, you know, I'm assuming adult children. So yeah, even Um, with a, what what would you say to adult children who are maybe trying to help or what would be good for them to know? Boy, early on, I mean, I just think you should read the book and certainly be very honest with the person you're talking to about this. Yeah. And hopefully bringing them on board with what they would like you to do or how you might be able to help them, make them part of the conversation because that's going to be so key and so important. So um, I hope that's specific enough. I I just know the book would be a great deal of help for them. Mm-hmm. Definitely. There's um, We have just a, a few minutes left, and I want to, one of the chapters, chapter 41, you're talking about 12 unexpected blessings at this late stage. And that, it's a fabulous, it's a fabulous little chapter because it really helps you, like you said, you, you've got to look for things. And if we look, we can find. And that's what um, I think about loss, obviously, loss and found. If we, we, we look for something, we can, can find it. And I just want to read a few of these insights um, to, to kind of end with the, the show here a bit. It, um, one of them says, the biggest insight in the ninth year is that Mike was still Mike. He was still present with us, something I did not think would be possible in late Alzheimer's. As long as we reached out to him and continued to believe he was still with us, he could respond and reach out to us too. Another one, it's easy to overlook that someone is still present when they cannot interact in the way we are used to. Instead, watch closely for any signs of awareness and you too will be surprised and rewarded with the resulting response and connection. Do not disregard or discount the little signs that your loved one is still engaged and in love with you. Write them down so you can remember them in years to come. I am so glad now that I kept a journal throughout our Alzheimer's journey. Stay open, even to the very end, to the positive things that might happen, rather than worry about the negative things that you've been told will probably happen. Expect good things to happen, and they very often will. Last but not least, focus every day on what your loved one can still do rather than fret about what he or she can no longer do. I think that is beautiful. Thank you, Kathy. I love the insights at the end of the chapter, and I was looking at those just before we started, and I said, Kathy, those would be lovely to hear in your voice. Mm -hmm. So I thank you for that. And I just... This is something that, that I think is beautiful. Mike continued to respond to my voice, touch, and presence throughout his ninth year. At that point, my greatest wish was that it might be possible for our love and mutual awareness to continue even to the final day. Without question, Mike's love for me and his family and our continuing love for each other helped make this cruel disease more bearable. And that's what I want us to leave the show with today is that connection that touch we um, Rosales and I both hope that you can reach out and have that with your own loved one and um, hopefully you'll go out and, and buy this book it will definitely give you encouragement it'll definitely give you guidance and it'll be something that you will be able to to pick up and you'll be able to love your your person more Thank you, Kathy. It was a pleasure to be here. I appreciate you coming. And um, when you're big and famous, (laughs) even more so, please come back again. And uh, just remember, be gentle with yourself, all right, people, and be gentle with others. 
And remember, as Lao Chi said, every new beginning is disguised as a painful ending. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.